If you'll turn with me either in your Bibles or in your worship guides to John chapter 12. We'll begin our reading this morning in verse 12 and read through verse 26. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. This is one of those passages of Scripture in which Jesus says something so hard that I think there's an inclination in us to avoid it. To say, perhaps, to rush on to the next passage of Scripture. To say, oh, I understand this passage without really thinking about what it means. Or to think something like, well, it was probably applicable to the people in Jesus' day, but isn't necessarily really applicable to us. Why is it so hard to hear? Consider again verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. To love your life is to lose it. To hate your life is to keep it. What do you think? Are you losing your life or are you keeping it? At the outset, we have to recognize that the voices that surround us culturally are constantly whispering just the opposite in our ears. To love your life is to keep it. You can have it all. You deserve whatever you want. You should take care of yourself and your loved ones first and then... If you have time and energy, you can extend yourself on behalf of others. And the American church has largely adopted this paradigm. What is American Christianity today but that we would be intent on serving ourselves first? And then, of course, we, we include Jesus in our worship portfolio because that's the way we guarantee heaven. And who's going to be happy without heaven? But that's largely the extent of much of our faith. When we begin to think about the ways that we passionately pursue our own interests, our own desires, when the church has also adopted this paradigm for life, then we should be afraid. 
Why should you be afraid? Why should I be afraid? Because Jesus is saying that loving your life is the surest way to lose it. How are we to understand what Jesus is after and how it applies to us? Let's consider our passage a little bit. As it begins, we see that it is Passover. It's the Jewish holiday that commemorated the exodus from Egypt and that God had extended salvation to Israel's eldest sons through the shed blood of the Lamb. Hundreds of thousands from all over the Mediterranean world descended upon Jerusalem for the annual event. This Passover is different. The crowds have gathered, palm branches have been collected, and as they are waved and thrown down, the crowds cry, Hosanna, which means literally give salvation now. The term had become shorthand for an acclamation of, of praise. And in verse 13, we see that the people are heralding Jesus as king. In uh, the quotation, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is from Psalm 118, it was a psalm that was used probably to crown the kings of Israel. And it's a psalm that became associated with messianic expectation. And why am I telling you all these tidbits in this background? Because at the very outset, what was traditionally Passover has taken on a very different dimension in that in the midst of Passover, the people are thinking that they are welcoming and heralding a new king. Everything that's laid out before us by John is, is pointing to that reality. The people are saying, oh, we, we praise you. We recognize that you are the sent one. We believe that salvation is at hand. And so there's ridiculous celebration going on amongst the people. But John, as he often does, points out the irony that's going on at the same time in our passage. While there's ridiculous celebration, John at the same time goes out of his way to make clear to us that no one really gets what's going on. They're celebrating or very frustrated by the celebration. Nobody's got a bead on what actually is unfolding. Notice the disciples Jesus is coming in as king. No one really pauses to think, why is he on a donkey? That's not a way that you come into a city to exercise kingship. You come in on a war horse. Now John tells us after the fact that this was intended to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy, but he also tells us that the disciples just weren't getting it at the time. They weren't able to put it all together. They didn't understand that the humility... The place is Jesus on a donkey is the same humility that would place him on the cross. The disciples aren't the only ones that are confused. The crowds are following after Jesus, but why? Not really because of who Jesus has claimed to be or what he has taught, but because he has raised Lazarus from the dead. The crowds are more intrigued by what Jesus is doing and who they perceive him to be rather than who he actually is and where he is going. And the Pharisees, of course, being confused all along, not believing that Jesus is who he said he was, are very frustrated. In verse 19, they say, You see that you are gaining nothing. The whole world has gone after him. But there's a neat recognition in the Pharisees' confession. Look, the whole world is going after him. We're failing. We've set our minds to kill him. We've tried to threaten those who are following him. The whole world is going after him. And soon in our passage, we're going to see that Greeks as well are going to follow after him. And in this, we see that the nations are starting to respond 
to the story of Jesus. God's redemption has always been intended for the whole world. His promise to Abraham was that not only to Abraham's seed, but through that it would be a blessing to the nations. And here you see the nations that are gathered at Passover beginning to respond to Jesus. And Greeks saying, we need to meet this individual. We need to hear this story. And despite the Pharisees' best efforts and despite the misunderstanding of the characters involved, Jesus, uh, the redemption that God is working out in Jesus is continuing to unfold. And so in verse 20, some Greeks approached Philip hoping to see Jesus. And that eventually gets relayed to Jesus. And of course, Jesus does not reply plainly. Jesus said that the hour has come for him to be glorified. And what does it mean that it's time for him to be glorified? He goes immediately to speak of his death. My glory is about to be manifest, and for Jesus that means I'm about to approach my death. He says that if a grain of wheat does not go into the ground and die, then it can never become a harvest. And similarly, if Jesus does not die, there can never be a harvest of life, a harvest of resurrection that would be affected by his death. But Jesus doesn't stop here, speaking of his own death. Notice what he does afterwards. Immediately, he goes on to say that this this picture of, of losing his life so that life might be extended to others is not just something that he is accomplishing. It is a road that we are called to follow. It is a paradigm that we are supposed to live out. That those who hate their life keep it, that those who love their life will lose it. What did Jesus mean when he says this, when he said this? The word hate comes across to us as extremely strong. It didn't mean that one should hate or despise every aspect of their existence. Loving and hating were words that were used in a Jewish context to communicate a fundamental preference. A good example is if you think of the story of Jacob. Jacob has two wives who are sisters, Rachel and Leah, and he prefers Rachel to Leah. And when Leah begins to recognize this, she says, oh, Jacob hates me and he loves Rachel. Now, Jacob is still married to Leah. He still is with her. He still provides for her. Right? But what Leah is communicating is that Jacob's ultimate preference is for Rachel. This is what Jesus is calling us to here, that the notion is that our ultimate preference must be not for the life that we've been born into, not for our own agendas, our own wills, our own preferences, but should be like His, submitted to the will of the Father. That should be our ultimate preference. In fact, in the sense of your life is already basically, fundamentally, geared to the preferences that you possess, right? And think about the decisions that you're making. Are they driven by what you want and what you need and your family wants and needs? And you are the person who decides all these things and you can't easily identify sacrifice anywhere, then that's a life that's characterized by a love of life. You don't hate your life, you love it. You pursue it, you pour into it, and you run the risk of losing it all. One who hates their life because their fundamental preference is to be so eager to serve Jesus and they recognize that the old self in them, in you, rebels against that. You've been born into rebellion against God. Your heart 
is wicked. You prefer, you're selfish, you're prideful. And in hating that, you begin to really understand what life is, but you also preserve life. It leads to eternal life. And it's the kind of life that, as we see at the end of our passage, that God the Father honors, He rewards. What does it mean to believe this? What does it mean to actually live as someone who hates their life rather than someone who loves it? Well, first, I think there has to be, unquestionably, a waking up. Right? At the beginning of the service, we, we sang together, Come awake. Come awake. Christ is risen from the dead. Why do we sing that to one another? Why do we sing it to ourselves? On a recent evening in Baghdad, a 14-year-old boy uh, named Usaid walked up to a mosque, a Shiite mosque in the city, and unzipped his jacket, and he was wearing a suicide vest that was filled with explosives. And he said to the guards at the mosque, I don't want to blow myself up, I'd like to surrender. And so they hurriedly proceeded to remove the vest and to move people away from the mosque, and Usaid would tell his story to the authorities. He had grown up in a small town in Syria where he had been recruited in his mosque by the Islamic State. And he had been taken to a training camp and he had been prepared ultimately either to be a fighter for the Islamic State or to be a suicide bomber. And while there, he became uh, disillusioned with what he had bought into earlier. He uh, thought initially that this was great. It was a way to honor Allah. It was something that was true and good and right. But once there, he begins to notice real problems with what's going on. They, the soldiers would go into a town that they controlled and they would beat a family for smoking. But in the camp, the soldiers smoked cigarettes. Usud said at night, he would find men out hidden behind the tents being intimate with each other. And over time, he says, this could not be what it was supposed to be. And so, eventually, he decides to volunteer to be a suicide bomber because he thinks it's his best way of escape from getting out. But he came to that, that decision, that point, and said, oh, everything that I've bought into, everything that I've understood is not really true. And I have to get out as quickly as I can. Friends, we have been abducted by sin and death. We have been born into a world that is, is twisted by that framework, We've been raised in the midst of lies of the enemy and lies of the world and lies of our own flesh, and there must be a waking up. We have to say, this is not true. This is not what God intends, and there must be a significant departure. And by that, I don't mean that there's a once for all, oh, I make a clean break with all of these things that, that are part of my old self, and suddenly I'm totally new. No, it's an ongoing waking up again and again that we would be made come alive, that we would recognize that, oh, this so much of my life that I am prone to love is actually something that I should hate, that I would be freed from it and actually rendered to service to Christ. So first, there must be a waking up. Secondly, there has to be some action. Action based on what you know serves Jesus rather than yourself. Verse 26 tells us, if anyone serves me, He must follow me. There is no service without following, nor can one be with Christ without being where he is, where he is active. 
a minister in Waco was recently speaking. He had pastored a large church in Florida and retired and had moved to Waco where some of his children were. And in his retirement, he took an interim position at one of the larger prestigious churches in Waco while they were looking for a new pastor and was sharing the story that uh, in moving, they moved into an apartment complex. They wanted to know the area before buying a house. And But in the process of living in an apartment complex, he's been confronted by a number of opportunities. One he shared, he was walking down the hall, he saw a woman who looked a bit distraught, he asked her how she was doing, and the woman proceeded to break down and to pour out her heart to him. Her life was not going well. There were many challenges, and he had the opportunity to to hear her, to to love her in the way that Christ would love her, and to share the gospel with her. So the man was reflecting, he has now this internal struggle. His wife, he and his wife were always intending to move to Waco and to buy a house, and they were anxious to live in a house. And But suddenly he felt like by moving into a house, he would be losing opportunities that were coming to him regularly to share the gospel with those who lived in the apartment complex. See, as he was beset with the question, what does it mean to really serve Christ? He was starting, in a sense, to hate that part of him that wanted to live in a house and say, perhaps should just be content to live in this apartment complex for the rest of my days for the opportunities it provides me to share the gospel. A picture of perhaps what it means to, to hate an aspect of life that we might be servants of the risen Christ. What is one way that you can prioritize serving Christ over some aspect of your life that you love this week? That you can put that aside and say, yes, intentionally I'm choosing to take a disposition where I hate or I have a fundamental preference for serving Jesus rather than serving my own agenda, simply filling up my own desires. Now, we can't pretend that this is an easy road. Jesus never pretended that it was. And in fact, he said quite clearly in a number of places that uh, many will fail in it. That really only few will understand and actually make this road, their lives. If our natural bent is to love ourselves to excess and to our own harm, then unless we intentionally do something, right? if my default position of my heart is to love myself first, then unless I'm doing something intentionally to work against that, I will always go back to my default. I will always seek my own ends first. Now, often we do recognize some love in our life that's misplaced. I say, oh, I'm loving something that's harmful to me. I'm pursuing it. Affection for it. I need to give it up. I'm going to stop. And we stop. And that's great. But it's not very long before that same love, that same affection is placed on something else that's just as harmful and just as distracting. A good example of this is a program recently that had the best of intentions, and it sought to try to get teenage girls in an urban environment outside of gangs they were participating in. You know what? The program worked. Girls were dropping out of the gangs. It was, in that sense, an exceptional success. But a year later, every single girl who had dropped out was pregnant. Why? Because the program stripped the girls of their identity and purpose in life without providing them a new identity and purpose, which they then pursued themselves. And we see where that ends up. It ended up in that case. If you find your identity and purpose in something that you love, 
and stop doing that, but your identity and purpose isn't then found in Christ, your affection isn't placed on Christ, then it will end somewhere else that will be equally destructive. We see this in small ways. Who hasn't given up something to take up something else to replace it? That we're, that we're equally distraught about, or equally, we recognize that it's equally as bad for us. Unless that affection, that love is placed on Christ, then it will always be misplaced. There is no alternative. And the only way our affection remains on Christ is to deeply consider, to ponder and to meditate on how greatly you have been loved by Jesus. The only reason that we can have this conversation, the only reason that we can talk about following him, is that he was willing to be the grain that fell into the ground and died, that life might come as a result. That is the extent to which he loves you and desires you to come alive And the way to come alive is actually to hate that part of your life that needs to be put to death. And to surrender to Christ in His leadership to serve Him and to be where He is. Now this brings us to an important point as we're trying to wrestle with what this means for our lives and what it looks like to actually follow Jesus in this way. And that is that Jesus' words are only shocking from the perspective of the old self. My old self, bound up in sin and false desires and and, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, these ways that we might describe the old self, Jesus comes and says, you've got to hate that. Well, if I love it, Jesus' words are threatening to me. He's calling me to give up something that I love, and that's not easy. It's a hard road. But my hatred is born out of the perspective of the old self. From the perspective of the new self... I recognize that Jesus is saying, yes, hey, exactly what needs to put to death. And to the extent that it's put to death, you will experience real life, true life. It's not threatening at all. It actually is the promise of life. What does it mean to realize this? Jennifer and I recently rewatched the movie Shadowlands, which is the story, 1993 movie, uh, telling the story... Uh, not of C.S. Lewis's life, but particularly of his relationship with Joy Gresham, who was the American woman that he met and eventually married, and Joy would die four months after their marriage of cancer. Uh, and it's, it's an outstanding story, as it does a good job of telling. C.S. Lewis, by the point that he meets Joy, has spent a lot of time writing. Uh, much of his work is published, and he spent a lot of time teaching, uh, in fact, about pain and suffering. And he said that, you know, some of his famous sayings that, that uh, pain and suffering is God's mega, megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. It's his trumpet to wake us up. He would say that the pain is the only way that God actually matures us. He desires for us to grow up, and it is the only means by which that happens. And so he's been writing and teaching these things. And, but the problem with Lewis is that he was, he, he could, he was so brilliant, he could understand it, you know, virtually anything abstractly, but he hadn't experienced what he was teaching. And God had that in store for him. Joy actually confronts Lewis, uh, in the midst of his life. She starts to get to know him and, um, they start to grow closer gradually, but Lewis has created this world in which he's largely protected and cut off in Joy's opinion, from the rest of the world. In other words, he he exists at Oxford, he teaches, 
but there's no one really who can hold court with him. He's, he's, uh, he's sheltered himself in a way that he really doesn't ever have to um, be affected. In the screenplay, or in the, 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 uh, the story was a play before it was a movie. And in the stage edition, Joy says to Lewis, see yourself in the mirror, you're separate from yourself. See the world in the mirror, you're separate from the world. I don't want that separation anymore. You see, Lewis had created a world that he loved. The story in the movie even links it to the death of his mother at a young age that he was wracked by that, and he, he had to create a world of safety. And the way he created a world of safety, given his gifts, was to create a world in which he was utterly dominant intellectually and had no contender. And here comes Joy, who's not interested in being his intellectual contender, but says, your life isn't real at all. You've built a wall around yourself so that no one actually gets in. You don't know what it means to be vulnerable. You don't know what it means to love. You pretend you do, but it's not real. Well, Lewis, of course, is, is deeply affected by this and over time comes to press into his relationship with joy. He comes to, to know what it means to be vulnerable and to love her. He comes to hate this this barrier of safety and protection that he had created that prevented him from actually being human comes to love joy, to be called into that relationship. Begins to know what life actually is. And then, sadly and harshly, and in ways that are some difficult to understand, uh, in this process, joy will be beset with cancer and will only survive two years. So, again... Uh, Lewis only had the, the pleasure, the privilege of knowing his wife for a total of four years and was deeply racked uh, by her death. Did not, it, was, it was a crisis of faith for him to understand and to process why God would permit this to happen. But as he wrestled th- through it, uh, Anthony Hopkins, who plays Lewis, says at the end um, this, Why love if losing hurts so much? I have no answers anymore, only the life I have lived. Twice in that life, I've been given the choice as a boy and as a man. As a boy, he's referring to the loss of his mother, and as a man, he's referring to the loss of his wife. The boy chose safety. The man chooses suffering. The pain now is part of the happiness end. Then, that's the deal. You see this process unfold that is desperately hard and desperately beautiful at the same time. That Lewis, this profound Christian thinker, is pressed to hate aspects of his life because they were disingenuous. They were part of his old self that created a world in which he existed very happily. He loved very much, but came crashing down when he was confronted by the real opportunity to love in a real way. And then having moved to that, he then faces the reality of death. That what he has come to love so much and been so thankful to God for is now being stripped from him. And in the midst of that, he comes to hate death. He comes, in fact, to hate some of what God is doing and even to struggle with hate for God himself. But what does Lewis say comes as the result of all this in his writings? No pun intended on his wife's name. He says joy is the result. Joy not in the sense of a silly happiness that we might think of as joy, but joy in the sense of a deep centering on Christ a deep anchoring in which his ultimate preference is for obedience unto the Father and trust in Him in the midst of what may befall him in life. And in this, he says, there is, there is deep joy. 
And would he give any of it up to go back to where he was, to where he loved life? No. He knows joy and he knows closeness with God as a result of being brought through that because he's learned to hate the aspects of life that he should hate. And what does he gain? He gains life. He gains life eternal. And he gains the approval of the Father. May it be true of us as well. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, I think we grossly underestimate how faulty we see this world and ourselves. and We underestimate our pride. We underestimate our love for ourselves. We underestimate the ways in which we love this life. And we underestimate the danger that we run of, of losing it. We pray that you would forgive us. We pray that in Christ we would learn to live as he intends. We would not only celebrate his death and burial as life to us, but understand that in that there should be a great awakening. And we pray that you would wake us up. We pray that you would help us to see that our unending pursuit of the things that we desire and love is ultimately empty and meaningless. And we pray instead that you would give us a fundamental preference to serve with and to be with Christ, wherever that may be. And in that we know, Father, because you have said that there will be joy, there will be life, and there will be the the desperate pleasure of knowing your approval. Father, we thank you for Christ who has made this possible and pray that you would make us more disciples of his than when we entered here today. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.